As always, I'd just like to remind you about the gold insert in your service folder and uh, invite you to use that if you'd like as we uh, study God's Word together today. As many of you know, um, on Friday, the Mega Millions lottery jackpot, yeah, see, I got your attention, right? It was at a all-time U.S. history, maybe history of the world high at uh, how much? $640 million, yes. And I'm not going to embarrass you and ask for a show of hands of how many people bought tickets, and even a better question might be, how many tickets did you buy? Um, but I would say that I know very likely that some of us did because there was one point, almost five billion tickets sold for that lottery drawing on Friday. Now, even at $640 million, if you are looking at it from an economical perspective, it's really not a great investment. And the reason why is that the odds of winning was 176 million to one. Someone put those odds into perspective and uh, they, they gave these stats that would be uh, 20,000 times more likely that you would uh, um, die in a car crash, 50 times more likely that you'd be struck by lightning than to win mega millions. And this was a weird one, I don't know why he studied this, but 33 times more likely that you would be lethally attacked by a swarm of bees, okay? So just in case you're wondering, not very likely, and yet you have 640 million dollars and 1.5 billion tickets being sold, people looking for a slice of happiness, um, people waiting in line at one store for four hours, some people spending as much as thousands of dollars on tickets. The very ironic part of this is if you've been watching the news, there's been more than one newspaper or internet story about what? About how as people sought happiness through the lottery, that winning it actually brought them the exact opposite. That winning the lottery has been shown, the fact show, that for more people, the majority of people, it's been a bad thing. There's a story of Juan Rodriguez. He won $149 million. He's a parking attendant in New York City. His wife looked at it as an opportunity, divorced him, and legally took half of the, the money. There's a lady named Evelyn Adams. She won the lottery not once but twice, and her family just continued to badger her for help and for money, and she said she never was able to learn the word no, and now she's bankrupt and living in an old beat-up trailer with no money, less money than she had. Um, you read through some of these articles, and some of the details of what has happened to lottery winners is, I mean, they were too difficult for me to even want to share in a sermon, but there's been suicides and murders and drug addictions and, 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 and gambling debts and bankruptcies, and it just makes us want to stand in line for four hours and buy lottery tickets, doesn't it? No, not really. See, the thing is that sometimes people try to fill certain emptinesses or certain voids in life with things that don't really fill the void or were never meant to fill that emptiness. And maybe you can look back on your life and you can see 
And maybe you're in it right now, maybe, but you can look back and see a season where you did that very thing. And most of the time, while these things we tried to fill the void with, whether that be getting married, or having kids, or getting the right job, or graduating from college, or a house, or a car, or a vacation, or whatever, the list could go on. We find that while those things bring us short-term happiness, maybe, they don't really fill the emptiness. And the reality, or the truth is, the reason is, is because God never intended them to fill that emptiness. He intended them to be blessings to us, but not to be that which we need the most. So this week, as we continue this study of the, the seven times that Jesus spoke from the cross, we're on number five, I'm thirsty. God gives us direction to help fill that void, or for maybe some of us to remind us of that which really gets rid of emptiness. Good Friday, Jesus was on the cross from 9 in the morning until 3 in the afternoon, the Bible says. So, about six hours. So, if you think about it, over the last five to six weeks, we've been spending looking at just six hours in Jesus' life. It's not a very long span of time. Six hours. He lived to be 33, so six out of about 200 thousand some hours that he lived on this earth. We've been concentrating on these, these hours. And the reason is, is because it was a red letter day. I mean, the day that he died to pay for our sins is a day that should take our consideration. A day that we should focus on. A day that Jesus began to prepare for months and years ahead. He began even to prepare his disciples for this day and the things that he was doing. On that day, listen to what he tells his disciples from John chapter 12 about his activity on that day. He, he says, now, speaking of his death and resurrection, is the time for judgment on this world? Right now, what I'm going to do, the prince of this world, there a reference to the devil, will be driven out. And so here we clearly see that the payment for sin would take action. That when you listen to these words, it sounds like Jesus is like getting himself ready for a war, for a battle against the prince of this world, that to take away sin, it would cost a price. Now, we all know what sin is like. We all deal with it every single day. We, all of us, sin more than we'd like to admit to those we love, and for many of us, we sin more than, or all of us, we sin more than we sometimes like to even admit to ourselves. But sometimes, one of the things, as we rejoice in grace, that is, un God's undeserved love, sometimes we can get a misconception of what grace or undeserved love really is. And sometimes we might think that grace or undeserved love is God seeing sin and choosing to ignore it. Seeing sin and choosing to just not deal with it. Um, sometimes we view God or grace sometimes as like a, a grandfather. Now, if you're a grandparent, um, I say this lovingly, 
But you have to know that in most times, you know, you guys change from when you were parents. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I see my mom and dad interact with my kids, and I wonder, you know, what happened? They look like Steve and Bonnie. I don't think they are. Because the things that you would when you had small children be upset about or direct or discipline, grandparents, they just <laughs> kind of laugh along and, you know, and, and let things go, right? You know, you want to stay up? Oh, that's okay. Mom's not here, you know. The grandparents tend to do these things in love and... I know grandparents discipline too sometimes, but in love a lot of times, grandparents will lean towards ignoring things, right? That sounds gracious, but with God, that's not grace. Because the reality is, he could not do that. You see, God is holy, and so when there is sin, it needs to be addressed. If God did not... He would cease to be holy and, in that sense, cease to be God. He could not, he cannot sort of sweep it under the rug. But you know what grace is? It's undeserved love that decided. Instead of counting your sins against you, I cannot ignore them. Instead, I am going to take out that punishment on someone else. Instead, my son is going to go to battle for you. And that sin I am not going to ignore. It has to be addressed. But in grace, in love, I'm not going to punish you. Through faith, I'm going to punish my perfect son. Here's how the Bible says it in 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who had no sin, that's talking about Jesus, to be sin for us. There's this amazing irony of the cross that I don't know if you've thought about before. When God, or when we look at the cross that day, you have the only person who ever lived that was absolutely perfect, and yet when God the Father looked at him on Good Friday, he saw more sin than any of us ever had because it was the sin of the entire world on him, on the perfect Son of God, was weighted on him as he suffered that punishment for us. It's a red letter day. That activity we needed happened. But sometimes we can so easily think about our forgiveness being won on Good Friday and Easter Sunday that we forget that there was more to it than that. We can jump ahead to Good Friday and forget something else. Listen to how Paul in Romans speaks about how we are saved or how we get holiness. He writes, it is through, and notice he doesn't talk about the death, that certainly is a part of it, but here he cho chooses to write about through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. It wasn't just that there was a sacrifice, you know, we couldn't just get together and, you know, who wants to die for the rest of us? That would not work. Because none of our deaths would make a difference. It had to be someone who was totally obedient, perfect, had kept all of God's law perfectly, and kept all of those Old Testament promises perfectly, too. And that part brings us back to our lesson for today. As we think about God not just dying for us, but being the perfect sacrifice. So we turn to uh, John 
um, chapter 19. This is uh, the fifth time Jesus spoke. It's seconds, literally, before he died, because the next thing he would say is, it is finished, and then he would die. We read verses 28 and 29. Later, knowing, Jesus knowing, that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked the sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Over the last weeks, we've gone into, in some cases, uncomfortable detail on what crucifixion meant. Um, talking about how it wasn't, it wasn't fast, it was slow, it wasn't bleeding, it was suffocation as your body just slowly got tired. Another aspect of crucifixion that made it difficult was the, the dehydration involved. Um, if any of you have played basketball or went running and you get like that knot in your calf where like you're running and all of a sudden it's like someone like threw a rock at you to knock you over because your calf just seizes up and you have to stop like right there. That calf just is so painful, right? On the cross, as you did not have things to drink and you're hanging there, in most cases for days, this is what would happen with your entire body. Not only would it get tired, but it would, like that rock-hard calf, seize up all over. And so being true man, likely this was happening to Jesus too. And you could understand why someone on the cross would want to drink, but... Did you catch why Jesus asked for a drink? John didn't write because he was thirsty, which he may have been. What does he write? Later knowing that all was now completed, and so that scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I'm thirsty that scripture would be fulfilled. What does that mean? I referenced it earlier. The Bible is this absolutely amazing, not book, library of books. It's these writings that were written in a 1,600-year span. It wasn't as if one author sat down and said, all right, I'm going to make this all connect. 1,600 years, and they all agree because God was behind it. And there were promises about Jesus in the Old Testament, about like where he'd be born and what family he'd be born to, and the fact that he would heal people, and the fact that he'd be a preacher. We talked earlier how Palm Sunday, amazingly, was prophesied, not just that a king would come into Jerusalem, that's not a necessarily in and of itself amazing, but that a king on a donkey, amazing. Did you know in Isaiah, there's a prophecy that Jesus would be crucified? The only thing is, it was hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented, or the Romans began it. Amazing book, the Bible. In the Psalms, a thousand years before Jesus, King David, an Old Testament king, writes this from Psalm 69. They put gall in my food, and in this prophecy about the coming Savior, gave me vinegar for my thirst. Do you see what's going on at the cross? 
is amazing. Jesus is there, writhing in pain, literally seconds from death, body likely seizing up, body close to death. And he asks for a drink because, not that he's thirsty, but because he realizes he needs to be the perfect substitute for us, and he remembers God's mind is not like our mind, but somehow he remembers this prophecy a thousand years earlier that before it could be finished, he needed to complete. And so he asks for a drink, not for himself. You know who he asks for a drink for? For you. He asks for a drink for me. Because he would not die until all was accomplished. And all was done. There are these moments in scripture that when you come across them for the first time or you look at them through different lens, that you are just forced to sit back and to be in awe of God and to be in awe of grace and to say, I am not worthy of that type of love, that type of commitment, that type of dedication to me. It is these moments where you just sit back and you, you think about how puny and how short-sighted you are compared to your amazing God and Savior Jesus who not only has everything planned but accomplishes it all just as he had said he would. And when we come across these times, like maybe right now, in our hearts we just kind of want to raise the white flag and say, God, I'm not going to worry anymore. I'm not going to, to, to complain anymore. I trust. I surrender to you, to your will, to what you have planned. Because you, my God, do all things the way you have promised. And friends, this moment, whether you realized it before or not, seconds before Jesus dies is one of those moments. Or you can be sure that Jesus has a plan for you as he fulfills the plan for the world. One of those moments where when you are trying to deal with some emptiness or deal with some void that for some reason other things have not been able to fill, that you can know, like I talked with the kids today, that the, the person you need is Jesus. And while he may not take away all of the sadness or all of the hurt right away, that you're going to be fine. That not because of your strength, but through his, you will get through one way or the other. And what confidence that can give to our prayers. See, our, our faith lives are like a journey. And uh, with this renewed knowledge today, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden, as you leave here today, that now all of a sudden, all right, you're ready just to sing and, and jump around and, you know, that all the emptiness and voids are gone like that. It could happen. But as we live our life of faith, here's what I do know. Right now, it helps. Right now, the Holy Spirit is working in you and through me, and you're being strengthened for whatever it is that you face right now. 
that right now, Jesus is no longer on the cross. But he's seated on his throne in power. That Jesus is exactly what we need. A couple weeks ago, um, my kids were on spring break. I know everyone tends to have different weeks around here, but for us it was a couple weeks ago, and uh, we decided on one day to uh, do a little family um, sort of trip together, and uh, um, we decided to take the light rail down to, uh, to Minneapolis. Another uh, positive with that is the whole family can do this for $6.50. So, you know, parents, Carrie doesn't probably think about that much stuff as much as I do, which that's just a part of my issue, um, for sure. I need to deal with um, thinking too much about that, but it was good. Um, and we went down and check out the city, and uh, as I was sitting in the, uh, in the, the car of the light rail, I, I noticed, uh, and I don't even think I told my family this, but I noticed a guy that was kind of making some weird movements. His back was to me, and I first thought maybe he needed medical attention because it was like kind of convulsing and things like that. And uh, so I just kind of kept my eye on him a little bit to see if I was needed. And uh, within a minute or two, um, he had turned around or at least turned sideways. And I, I noticed what the issue was, and that was that he had headphones in, and he was like attempting to dance. Now, I have, I have two observations, one of them being that now no longer can my friends or family ever say that I'm the worst dancer they've ever seen because that's factual, that guy's worse that I saw. Um, the second thing I, I noticed is, or observed, is that when you don't hear the music, that dancing seems weird. That the only time that dancing makes sense is when you're able to hear the melody, okay? Today on Palm Sunday, we stand at the beginning of another Holy Week. And as we consider Jesus' perfect life today, his death, his resurrection a week from today, there's a melody playing. Not everyone in the world hears it. Some of us may be hearing it for the first time. For those who believe, it's this song, it's this melody that Jesus is singing to us. And, and, and the words of the, the, the song tell us to come to him. And the sin that burdens you, give it to him. I've taken care of it. The things that are challenges in your life, give them to him too. Because the, the perfect God, or the perfect plan for salvation has the strength and the plan to take care of that as well. He says to us, I have the power to fill the void and emptiness. No lottery ticket or possession or relationship or anything else could ever fill. And believe it or not, Jesus, asking for a drink just moments before his death is just one more evidence of his purpose, his plan, his love for us. Amen. Please stand.